Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm just always excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. You know, the theme today is about being a judge, and I'm going to interview myself, in effect, because what is it like to be a judge? What is the job description? How can we contribute to society? And in my view, this was told to me by my great friend, uh, Judge Andy Guilford. He he focused upon this, that I believe the judiciary is, in many ways, the most important branch of government, that it will enforce minority rights. And that's critically important to who we are, both individually as well as a country, because, as you know, the executive department— is elected by the majority, so it responds to the majority. Same thing in the legislative department. You know, it's if you're going to take minority positions, you frequently do not get elected by the majority, but it's the judiciary that actually stands up and protects our rights. As you may know, I wrote a a musical called Convention, The Birth of America. So it hasn't been performed yet. We're still in that stage. But but I looked into the founders. And again, I call not the founding fathers because a lot of women were founders as well. But to a person, to a delegate, each of those delegates, they disputed many things. They argued about things at the Constitutional Convention. But the thing that they all agreed upon is the most important function of government is protecting our liberties from the encroachment of government. And the second most important was keeping us secure, keeping us safe, but but it's the judiciary that actually enforces those minority rights, and, and I believe that p- prosecutors should always do the right thing for the right reason, so should police officers, and certainly so should judges. So there are really two critical duties of a judicial officer. And the first is to do justice as well as we can under the facts, under the law, under the ethics of our profession. That's critically important for any any society. But the second is equally important, and that is to show anyone who cares that justice has been done. Uh, The idea, you lose because I say so, never goes over well, nor should it. That you listen, you explain, and, and and you... Look into the law and then explain your reasons so that people believe that you, in fact, have done justice. Actually, rather comically, I can tell you that it's it's kind of known that judges have three qualities. You're supposed to show three qualities. One is you're supposed to have gray hair to show that you've been around for a while. Number two is to have wrinkles to show that, that you're, you're educated and experienced. And the third is hemorrhoids for that look of concern. Well, that's that is meant to be a joke, but but you you're supposed to to sit there and and educate and be educable. There's a difference between educated, which judges are, and educable, which is quite a bit different. It means that you don't. We're the ultimate generalists, I think, in our world. That we can't know everything, of course, but we can be educable. We listen and we can learn, and then we can apply the law uh, as we research it. My. <coughs> Excuse me. My father was a great federal judge and and one of the heroes of my life. And when I took the bench back in the the end of 1983, he gave me some advice to sit back, listen, be patient. That will all come together eventually. And and pretty much it always did. So that's kind of my background, that uh, I was a generalist, still am, really. I think judges are the ultimate generalist. But I went to UCLA, then was a Peace Corps volunteer in Costa Rica, then went to USC Law School was being drafted immediately, so ended up being a United States Navy JAG uh, officer, criminal defense attorney, and then a federal prosecutor. Actually then worked for a private law firm for about five years, then was a judge for 25 years, and now I'm doing private judging. So so you, you get an, a well-rounded thing there, but you put yourself in a lot of ways in the ozone. Now, what do I mean by that as judges? You know, uh, 
my my daughter was having some problems uh, adjusting for when she was younger, and so I was actually listening to a therapist, and he took me aside and said, Mr. Gray, you should put yourself in the ozone. I said, what do you mean by I, I don't get that? Oh, oh. Oh, you know, it's responsive, but it's not, it's not com- committing, but you're, you're showing that you're listening to people. Judges need to do that as well. People need to understand that they are being listened to. And then you can uh, settle a lot of cases by doing that as well, just by having people understand, get it off their chest, get their day in court, feel that they've, that they've gotten the answer. And then you explain, okay, if it's in a personal injury case. You explain to the plaintiff that after all the evidence has been received, you know, you, it's your burden of proof. That means you have the responsibility more likely than not that, that whatever it is you say happened did. Uh, and yes, you were injured, but uh, you have to show that the other person was negligent. And, and maybe you did, but, but you haven't been able to show one of the elements that your injury to your back was actually caused by your having fallen in that supermarket or whatever else. And, and otherwise, uh, I would have felt for you, but, but you have to explain why this is. So I actually took it upon myself and I wrote a book called Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Court. And it's really a guide to the practices and principles of being a judge. And I'm proud to say that it's used in the state of Indiana today as a, as a judicial tool for judicial education. And uh, I go through everything that I can think of with regard to being a judge. It's the only how-to book for judges that I'm aware of. But you go through the history of it. You go back to the to Old Testament. You didn't have rulers. You had judges. And, and you explain how this all was. And Then we go through every calendar in the state court of California. Uh, the criminal courts, civil courts, relationship calendars, I call them, which would be juvenile, a family, a probate. Then you get into others as well, like adoptions, mental health. Uh, we talk about trials from start to finish, post-trials, uh, appeals, that sort of things, settlement conferences, and then literally how to become a judge and the attributes of some judges and good and effective judges, even then their public life, because judges are always on display. Uh, I would just be conscious of that as a judge so that you would, if you're going to go to the hardware store, I wouldn't just go in sloppy clothes because I didn't want to represent that judges uh, are sloppy, so you'd have to dress up a bit. Uh, media rel- media relations, all that sort of thing. And then where the judiciary goes from here, uh, there's a difference, by the way, between the word courtesy, which you should always show a judge, and respect, which has to be earned. And these are important things as well. Get into restorative justice, addressing different reasons for criminal conduct, and that sort of thing. So, we're in the responsibility business. And again, this is all rise the libertarian way. And libertarians really are in the responsibility business as well. Uh, I'm proud of our profession, and it gives everyone focus on this, that the the law profession provides foreseeability to society. It really kind of greases the wheels, not only socially of our lives, but also from a business standpoint, that it enforces contracts, it enforces warranties. Uh, So you have to, you know that if in fact you do this, that will probably be the result. So you stay out of trouble uh, and you are able to, to get things that actually work so that we provide that in the legal profession. And judges, of course, oversee a lot of that, but also most people don't realize that most attorneys never go to court. Most attorneys are actually, they do transaction work where they help set up contracts. They help uh, oversee uh, various uh, relationships and that sort of thing. Tax law, uh, that, that sort of thing too. So most attorneys never go to court and they are, they are certainly there helping us provide be successful in our world. So let's let's talk for a few minutes about criminal courts because you know it's easy to get into the criminal justice system and really hard to get out. And numbers of our pro- past programs here on All Rise have discussed that that the, it's really critically important for our police officers, for example, not to bring people into the system unless it's really necessary because you can cause lasting harm to somebody if they're even arrested, uh, and that is not something to be done lightly. So you understand that just like with a surgeon, uh, surgery is the last result. Yes, we need surgeries, but but it's the last resort, and, and it's the same thing for an, an arrest. That should be the last resort for a police officer as well. And I still remember 
remember when I was a federal prosecutor, uh, one time uh, the clerk announced a case, a uh, United States of America versus John Smith or whatever. And John Smith was the defendant there. And he said, oh, my God. And if you think about it, I mean, the entire United States of America against me. So we have protections. And it's critically important that those protections be utilized because literally it can be there, but through the grace of God, go I. That any of us could be prosecuted, rightly or not rightly. Uh, in fact, we had on this show someone from the prison project, the uh, Innocence Project in San Diego, and he talked about himself having walked 31 people out of state prison because they were found to be factually innocent. Just a terrible situation. We have to enforce our laws. That was Justin Brooks from the San Diego Innocence Project. If you want to listen to that, it was broadcast last October, excuse me, November the 8th. But but it's critically important that, yes, we, we prosecute people, but use it in an enlightened fashion. It is the obligation of a police officer to do the right thing for the right reason, like we said, and also a prosecutor and certainly also a judge. And if you look back over the past decades, a lot of this came as a result of the war on drugs, but we have turned a political political watchword of touch on tough on crime and actually turned it into a public policy. And we now in the United States of America have reaped the so-called benefits of that. They're actually the detriments that if you know this, United States of America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And as uh, we had in a Jim Webb, who used to be a United States senator for Virginia, we're looking at those statistics, and he said either we're the most criminally oriented society in the world or we're doing something wrong. And which do you think it is? I'm convinced that this whole tough on crime, mandatory minimum sentences, you know, three strikes and you're out, those sorts of things uh, have, turned, have done us ill. We have tens of thousands of people in prison today that should not be there, in my opinion. And uh, I'm not any bleeding heart liberal. I'm a judge. And I'm in a responsibility business, but these are things that we simply need to look at. Instead, the, understand the purpose of a sentence, a criminal sentence, is to deter criminal conduct. Yes, it's also to punish, but it's to show victims that we take your your victimization seriously, but the aim of the criminal justice system is not to punish, it is to reduce crime. Now, and and these are things that we really need to get into. And aptly, I saw this right away when I became a municipal court judge, which is the lower of the two trial court judges in Orange County, California. Uh, this is back in 1983, and I saw that the the most underserved issue in our courts at that time were alcohol-related offenses, and we would take these people and we'd growl at them and slap their hand a bit, certainly take their money and tell them not to, to go out and not commit, recommit these offenses. But if they were alcoholics, they, they, they would go back, they'd get one drink, they'd get seven, then they'd get by, behind the wheel again. So instead, we put up a drug court. And within six months of when I was appointed, we had our drug court operating for alcohol-related offenses. And I would have them go through a enrollment process where they would have to actually go see a medical doctor. And the doctor would give them a blood test. And of course, the blood is the body's manager and it's a messenger. And it's able to, to tell you, for example, you'd have a a guy in a, an ogre in a black robe, namely the judge, growl at you, and you, I'd get their attention for a while, but after a while that would wear off. But if you have a medical doctor in a white smock looking at you and saying, you know, I've, I've taken your blood and uh, your, your kidneys are failing, that a normal kidney function is, is a 17 and you're down to a 12, you're dying because of, of your use of alcohol, that would get their their attention. You'd hold them accountable for their actions. And uh, if they, I'd tell people that if they even eat rum cake and I found out about them, I would put them in jail for a short period of time. And it would get their attention to the degree that we were able to keep 65% of the alcoholics from drinking alcohol for six months, which was as long as I was able to keep statistics. So judges can be the ultimate social workers. That if you don't, if you're not interested in people, you're not interested in trying to help people, you should get into a different category, go into civil law or something like that. But if you're on a criminal calendar, on a family law calendar, probate calendar, we're in the service business. 
business. We are the ultimate social workers. And right now, then, we have developed other courts, I'm glad to say, getting away from this formality, away from this punishment that talk to, we have veterans courts now springing up all around the country. We have mental health courts, homeless courts. Uh, We are the ultimate social workers. In fact, on this All Rise show, we had Judge Mary Krieber broadcast on August the 23rd, talking about these various family-oriented courts, and it was just really important stuff. So these are things that people just don't realize, oh, you're just a bleeding-heart liberal, that sort of thing. I was uh, actually given an award by Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was really kind of a satisfying thing to me for my drug court, because it was before that time, it seemed to me that if you'd put somebody in jail longer, that the mad people would be happier. But once they saw we're really trying to reduce the amount of drinking and driving, that that was really a helpful thing. So we need to be able to get out there in our community, in our country today, and talk about things. And we really are getting so polarized, we're just not doing that very well. So we need people of responsibility. And we've had numbers of people in responsibility here on our Ball Rise show, uh, talk about things like the death penalty, for example. And you you can go back to May the 31st of 2019. You remember Mike Farrell, who was uh, B.J. Honeycutt on MASH, a wonderful show, but he's now heavily involved in uh, countering the death penalty. We, we talk about that. And if you're in favor of reducing crime, you should want to repeal the death penalty. It's simply not working for anyone. Uh, These zero tolerance laws, the mandatory minimum laws, the enhancements, all the rest of that are really great tools for prosecutors to coerce people, but they're not being used constructively. So we get into these sorts of things as a judge, and we're the ones that oversee what is going on. Uh, There was one time I was on a mental health calendar, and uh, it seemed that there was this young man who had definitely mental problems, uh, and there were two California state agencies that were kind of throwing him back and forth, neither one taking responsibility. And I ended up writing a letter as the judge on this case saying, this department has this obligation to this man is in our custody. You have an obligation to provide treatment for him. Uh, And it turned out that the director ended up losing his job because he was too involved with money instead of trying to actually pull out this function. Judges are able to oversee these things and able to get things done. Traffic court, you know, probably the two most, other than juvenile court, the two most important areas of judging is traffic court and small claims court because you involve yourself with more people in society that way. And people are prepared once again to to lose. They're not prepared to lose somebody that wasn't listening or seems to be arrogant. So again, the purpose of traffic court is what? Well, it's to keep us safe on the streets as opposed to receiving money. So we have gotten now, unfortunately, all around the country, from my perspective, uh, we have a lot of local communities that are using their traffic court as a fundraiser. Uh, And they have, even in Orange County, uh, I'm out of touch with it now, but when I was on the bench, we had penalty assessments. So if you would fine somebody $100 for speeding or whatever, and you'd say plus penalty assessments, and that would add another $150 onto it. So by the time they got down to pay their fine, it wasn't $100, it was $250, and they were not waivable. And this is just, it's really working disadvantage for a lot of poor people and working a whole lot of other extra bureaucracy in in addition to that. So they would end up doing community service work and being paid $10 an hour figuratively to do that, working off their sentence. Uh, And these these are traffic court. The purpose of traffic court is to keep us as safe as we can be on the freeways, on the highways, and not to, to hold people accountable by taking their money. We also, I have seen, have a program with the California Highway Patrol called the 1199 Foundation. And I look at this askance. First of all, by the way, it's a wonderful program, and they they give a lot of help and assistance to widows and orphans of of fallen CHP officers and the rest. But for $2,500 donation, you can get a license plate frame that says CHP 1199 Foundation. And you can also get a wallet with personalized identification. Okay. So what? Well, the idea is that if you if a CHP officer stops you, he she will see that you have that you've made that contribution to their widows and orphans fund and they'll give you in effect a break. That whole idea of having justice for sale is anathema to our country and it is something that simply should not be there or you should take out, "Oh, yes, I have my 
driver's license officer and you pull out your wallet with the 1199 Foundation ID right next to your driver's license, it has a bad feel to it. Whether it actually results in justice for sale, I'm not prepared to say. I don't know. But I've spoken to a lot of people that drive fancy cars and say, wow, the 1199 Foundation license plate sure, sure bailed me out on that one. So it's simply something that we should not condone. Judges oversee these things, and judges have position of responsibility in society so that they can, in effect, stand up and be neutral. So we're also involved in civil cases, and this basically means that one, one private individual is suing another private individual or company, or the government can be sued as well, and the government can, can bring cases, but they're not criminal. There's no criminal sanction. You can't punish somebody by giving them a fine or giving them time in jail. It's just a civil dispute, and it can be a really expensive, time-consuming, and even emotional experience, so you want to avoid that, if at all possible. Uh, the I've seen, in fact, I would tell medical doctors that for a long time, my favorite, all-time favorite bumper sticker was, become a doctor and support a lawyer. And what I mean by that, and it's not disparaging, because medical doctors are trusted by people as well they should be, and they also tend to be quite trusting, and as a result, and they had some money for a long time until the government started getting involved more in our, in our healthcare system, and that's a different topic, but, but now they're not quite paid so well, but it used to be that they had quite a bit of money, were trusting, were trusted, and they get into the craziest business relationships. Usually, of course, they were the ones that were funding it, and then they'd fall apart, and then, of course, everybody would start bringing lawsuits against each other. The better idea is to know when you don't know something and seek legal advice before you get involved in a, in a dispute. That the best way of the victory in civil disputes is not to have the disputes at all. It used to be, as I understand it, in Japan before the Second World War, that business leaders would get together, form contracts, and then they would say, and if we have any difficulty in the future, you and I will work them out. And that basically worked quite well. It's a matter of, of having experience, justice, and, and, and your good name. We've gotten away from that now, but we can go back to this using the legal profession to keep you out of difficulty. And don't be pound penny wise and pound foolish. Spend a little bit of money and time with regard to your will, your trust, uh, your, your civil contracts and the rest and try to stay out of these things. If in fact, though you do get in them, try to go into a settlement conference as soon as you reasonably can. Once you understand, of course, what the issues are, but, uh, in, in my settlement conferences, I try to, to tell people numbers of things. And one is there's a major difference between the word solve and the word resolve. Now, most human disputes, most human problems do not have solutions. I'm sorry to say, you know, if somebody goes through a red light and runs into your car and breaks your leg, the solution would be not to have had your leg broken, not to go through the pain and the, and the discomfort and the rest. Well, I can't do that. All we can do is resolve your case. And if people start understanding that there's no solution, is only a resolution, frequently, of course, providing money from one side to the other, dust you off, pick you up, move you and get you back and get your life back uh, and aim you in the right direction, we've done our job. So we can do that in settlement conferences. But again, it's really important to listen. And as a judge, if you're involved, and we, we should teach this in high school, from my standpoint, of dispute resolution uh, and tell Give people their day in court, listen to them, respond to them, and then just ask a few questions. Uh, one of the real triumphs I had as a judge on a civil calendar, I still talk about it, this this happened about uh, 20 years ago, but I had two brothers suing each other, and by the time we were finished, I would listen to them, I'd ask a few questions, then we had one brother standing arm in arm with the other one. They hadn't spoken to each other in 12 years, and they actually had the plaintiff dismiss the case, saying, I can't believe I haven't spoken to my brother in such a long period of time. We'll work this out, and they left my courtroom arm in arm. Be the peacemaker. Judges can do that. All of us can be in that position. So these are some things that I have seen as a judge. We'll come back after these 
these messages and discuss a little bit more in the insights as to settlement conferences and then other calendars that we have on courts. Because again, judges are the ultimate generalists in our society, usually have the respect and position to be able to get the right thing done for the right reason. We'll come back again and talk about these. I hope you're interested and I hope you're doing the same thing in your lives. And after these messages, we'll come back and do some more. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back after those messages. Again, this is Judge Jim Gray kind of spouting off on my profession. I was proud to have been a judge for 25 years, and uh, it just puts you in a position to be able to do the right thing for the right reason. Just imagine if you are helping people resolve their disputes. Uh, It's a really good feeling. It's a gratifying feeling, and you can get that by being a judge. If if you're in the legal profession and are interested in becoming a judge, uh, pursue it. It's, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity to be in, uh, and you could always uh, get my book, Wearing the Robe, and, and uh, I pass along everything I can to you as to uh, what it is like and what, how you can do it better. So, uh, actually, I understand that uh, despite the high cost of living, it does still remain popular, that is, living, and that was my one attempt at humor for the, for the moment, but here we're back to discuss what it is like being a judge. And I was just beginning to get into civil cases and and uh, getting into dispute resolution. And and if you'll, there was another case that I had. It was gosh, back in 2001, if I remember correctly, and it was the the principal at a Catholic high school here in in Southern California, who was actually a wonderful man doing great things, raising money. They called him Father Hollywood, and he was just just always out there helping his school except for one major problem and that was he was on the side sexually molesting boys in his in his high school and this was an awful case where the uh, plaintiff finally they were all catholics the the plaintiff was a young man who found two catholic uh, attorneys to represent him and i had a settlement conference in which he was suing the the uh, 
high school principal as well as the Orange County and Los Angeles diocese. And so how do you settle this? It had been kicking around the court system for a long time. And I sent the plaintiff as well as his two Catholic attorneys into my jury room and I asked them, look, how I know that you want to keep this from happening. What changes could you recommend to the diocese in Orange County and Los Angeles County that would reduce this or keep this again from happening? So they were gone for about an hour and they came back and they had 10 suggestions. You know, any time, for example, that anyone raises any issue about anyone in the church sexually molesting or doing anything harmful like that, you must call the police. That means you can't kick it under, put it under the rug. You have to expose that. And they recommended an eight number for victims. I mean, that sort of thing. So they had 10 recommendations. So I looked at the Catholic bishop who was there, as well as his attorneys, all of whom were Catholic. And I said, look, please take these lists into my jury room, discuss them and come back and respond to them. So they were gone for about an hour. And then they came back after that hour and said, well, your honor, we have actually agreed to all 10 of those changes and we've added one. And so I looked at the plaintiffs and the parties and said, you can go to trial, you can get money, but there's no way that you can get these changes that only you can only do that by settling this case. So I suggested a number. It was a lot higher than the defendants had in mind and certainly lower than the plaintiff did. And they all actually ended up agreeing to that because you can accomplish things in this settlement conference that you could never get by going to trial. And they were so interested in trying to keep this from happening again that uh, this little creativity were able to put this behind them. And since that time, by the way, when I was running for U.S. Senate as a libertarian here in California, I received a letter and a con and the campaign contribution from that former plaintiff that he had become an attorney, he was successful, and it was just really pleasing to, to see that we could help him address these things, get on with his life after and uh, and dust him off and aim him in the right direction and those changes were made in the catholic priest in the catholic diocese here in orange county as well there were another case sometimes creativity and we all again in our private lives can help resolve disputes or help them from being from starting out in the first place and one of those it was one Vietnamese businessman uh, suing another Vietnamese businessman and of course the community is really the the communities in Vietnam uh, here in California are really quite tight. Everybody in the community knew that this lawsuit was going on. It was kind of a matter of face as to who was going to be successful. So I finally decided, look, ask the plaintiff, uh, do you know what Orangewood Children's Home is? And this is a wonderful children's home where we take abused and neglected children uh, and take care of them until we can resolve their disputes or, or find the right place for them to live. It just does wonderful work. And he said, well, yes, I've heard about that. And then I looked at the defendant and said, look, how about let's settle this case by you giving, I think it was $20,000 as a volunteer contribution to Orangewood Children's Home. And uh, so we were able actually to convince them both that this would be a really good resolution for their lawsuit. The plaintiff could say, well, I won, you know, I was, I, you'd be vindicated that the defendant had to pay money and the defendant, well, I, you know, I came out, I was all right as well because I was making this donation to this wonderful organization. They actually ended up settling the case on that basis. So you can't accomplish that in trial either, but a little creativity working with people, it's really felt quite good to be able to do it. There's another thing that maybe you've noticed that there's a psychology of numbers and it's not an accident, for example, that you go and buy an advertised product and it's not $10, that would be too much. It's only $9.99 because psychologically that sounds like it's less than $10. And of course, we all notice this uh, all the time. So I would be able to look, for example, at a defendant and say, well, would you offer $40,000 to settle this case? $40,000, that's too much money. Not a chance. I'll go to trial. I'll never do that. Okay, defendant, would you pay $38,750 to settle this case? Sure. So it sounds so much less. So I would incorporate that in my settlement proposals uh, as well. And there are other occasions, and I know that you out there probably encountered these as well, that if you have, for example, somebody that's in a corporation, some officer, and he or she made a decision that resulted in this lawsuit. 
And if that person happens to be the representative at the settlement conference for the corporation, you have to, you'll never get that person to agree because then that person would be acknowledging that he or she had made a mistake. So you have to set it up colorably so that, look, anyone at that time, just knowing what you knew at the time would have made that decision as well. Once they can agree with that, can see that they have that political out, then they will agree to settle the case. Otherwise, no, I'll never settle. Uh, we'll go to trial. They can always blame that stupid judge. They can always blame that stupid jury. They can even blame their own stupid attorney, but it certainly wasn't my fault unless you're able to show them politically and show their cohorts that, and look, I didn't have enough information at the time, so it was not an unreasonable decision to have done. So these are really important things that all of us can use in our lives and understand also that the word silent and the word listen have the same letters in them, the same six letters, and there's a connection there. You can't you can't listen if you're talking. So these are things maybe you should maybe I should tell myself that I've been doing a lot of talking for the last few minutes, but but these are important things. So the victory can come not by by being not sued in the first place, by not putting yourself in that position. Also, by the way, as voters, look at all of these various programs that we have, that there's there's any program anytime you have a program in today's world there are always some others that will be able to take advantage of it and we have seen that with regard nationally to the ADA the Americans with Disabilities Act that it is abused so much and you see this as a judge there's nothing much I can do about it but you find these kind of factories where they send people into these organizations and you see that the lettering in on a, a sign saying something about your victim's rights is not as large as it should be so you you sue them and then you kind of shake them down for like a five thousand dollar settlement and they have to pay this money just because it's much too expensive to defend yourself and we get into these the private attorney general act in california people take advantage of these things we've got to reduce those exposures uh, so these are things that you also have to understand as a judge you have to know when you do not know something as an attorney at the same thing so you can do a lot of good in this world but recognize just because if you don't know something recognize that I tell people in my settlement conferences all the time hey I'm really good at two things number one is I don't know anything about bankruptcy law the other is I don't know anything about tax law and I excel at that and I tell them that because I I don't and for me to give people advice or make recommendations is just simply not smart send it to people that do know and today of course there are so many traps for the unwary so if you if you know when you don't know something, and that would be true as an accountant or in any phase of our world, uh, it's important for judges to understand that as well. Ask questions. Just ask questions. It's a good thing. Small claims court cases. I said that that uh, traffic cases and small claims are probably the most important because we have more interaction with the community because people need to understand that justice is being done and believe that and see it. And it's kind of like town hall justice. If you go back into our the colonies and, and uh, you would have the, the the people that maybe the mayor would actually in public hold a kind of a town hall justice where you would have somebody having a complaint against someone else and you'd let them get them off their chest and you even call witnesses and kind of just make a decision and people would accept it. There's nowhere else to go. And it's pretty much the same thing in small claims court cases. Now each state I believe has small claims. The jurisdictional limit is different. Uh, and when I was on the bench, it was raised from $5,000 to $10,000 and, uh, only the defendant could appeal. If the plaintiff lost, uh, that case was over. And then if the defendant decided to appeal, they could appeal, but not by writing to an appellate court. They just have a second small claims court case. And, and one way or the other, that would be done. It's really an important thing. And I tell people, because it's so expensive now to get an attorney for some things, if you had a good solid $15,000, $20,000 claim, take it to small claims court, just try to get the jurisdictional limit, which I think is now raised to $12,500, and you'll just be much better off. No attorneys are, are allowed by law to represent you in that case, unless they're actual parties, and then you would just ask questions. Uh, and you could research these things as a judge. Uh, you were the one that could go out. Uh, there were times where... Uh, for example, a, a truck was being painted and the, the uh, uh, complaint was that you didn't do a good job, uh, I would find some other 
painter that would paint trucks, use that person as my expert witness, have the plaintiff take his truck over and just have it examined by that person, and that person then could respond to me, kind of like, yes, that this was a problem, or no, that was within the, the scope of our of our. Uh, of our profession, uh, you can so you could do this as a judge, and it's really an important facet. But, but candidly, I can also tell you that the one time uh, I was involved with as a judge on a small claims court case, where a lady said that she was on the freeway and she was rear-ended by a by a man in another car, and. Uh, so that was pretty standard, and if you rear-end somebody, it's pretty much always a liability on the person that, that did ran into them. But the defendant said, you know, I was always told by my wife that if ever this happened to me, that I should take down the license plate of people close by who had been witnesses. And I so I happened to do this, and the lady, the plaintiff, actually backed her car into me on the freeway, and she then took off on an off-ramp because everybody was stopped. So I did. I was stopped, and she rear-ended, she ran into me by backing into me. And here's the license plate number of the person that would have seen this. So I had my bailiff trace the uh, license plate, and I actually called and spoke to a someone there who answered the phone and I told him what was going on. I was a judge on the case and that this was the allegation. Did you see on such and such a date? Did you see this happen? Yes. Well, what did you see? Well, there was this, everybody was stopped and the the person in front backed her car into the car behind her and then took off. Now, I didn't know to this day, this happened many, many years ago. Maybe I've been had, maybe they had their, their best friend uh, be that be that person. I don't know, but it was the plaintiff's obligation to, to give probable, to, to prove it by a preponderance of the evidence. And I had that question. So I found in favor of the defendant, but again, I never knew if I'd been, if I'd been had or not. That's why there's a jurisdictional limit. You're not going to get in a cases of hundreds of thousands of dollars, et cetera, uh, just without an appeal and the rest, but it's really good for small cases. We also imagined this when I was on the mental health calendar as a judge, I'd also start the day pretty much each day by performing three adoptions. And boy, talk about putting a smile on your face. That This is one area of the law where everybody is happy. Uh, and frequently you'd come in and they would bring in the child, of course, and then the, the husband and the wife or the mother and father would be having to swear under penalty of perjury, at least under California law, that they will treat their now-to-be-adopted child as if it was their natural child, as well as for purposes of inheritance or anything else. And they would swear to do that, and that was obligated under the law. And frequently, there'd be potential grandparents there as well. And I'd look at them and say, well, you have to raise your right hand. You have you have obligations as well under penalty of perjury. They'd look at me like I was kind of strange, which I'd always had some fun with this, and said, well, yes, you have the obligation of spoiling the grandchildren. Oh, I can do that. I can do that. And I actually had them. They would take pictures, and I would request that they send me a picture of of the proceeding. And they'd sometimes, you know, have hats, and and uh, uh, they were all excited. And then I formed actually a scrapbook and talk about happy pictures. But I made a scrapbook of of all of these various pictures where I was performing these adoptions. And you can imagine, I've been stopped on the street or stopped at a at a market sometimes thereafter. It happened to me again about two weeks ago. Oh, Judge Gray, you won't remember me, but you performed the adoption 22 years ago of our child and now the child's graduated from college and all that sort of stuff. It's just a wonderful function, a wonderful thing to be able to be in as a judge. And these are, we preside over a lot of unhappiness and bad things in our world, but there are a lot of good things as well. And talk about some, some, some bad things that happen. If you go into the probate court and here, of course, you have somebody that's died. That person either did not have a will or did have a will, but it's, but it's uh, being contested in some fashion or another. And uh, it is the job of the judge in those cases to try to get into the mind of the person that deceased and try to figure out what that person wanted because it's their property. Uh, and sometimes the competency would be questioned as to uh, a will or a trust that was made. Sometimes you'd have undue influence, etc. But you just try to get into the mind of that person. You don't do do what you think is right. That's that's not your your function. It's to get into the to the head of the person whose property it is that's being discussed here. And unfortunately, a lot of times things get very complicated. A natural formula for litigation in probate court is the second wife 
against the children of the first marriage. And there, there's frequently no love involved, and you have the ingrates, those children, as opposed to the gold bricker, and it's just a formula for, for litigation. Not much fun, but also, I'm sorry to say, that the object of free money sometimes brings out the bad things in people. And I've actually had cases in which uh, we would have some siblings squabbling with each other over the, the probate of their parents' deceased parents' estate. And it turns out that, well, when we were 12 years old, you lied to my parents our parents about me, and now I'm going to get you sort of thing. But, but you can do these things. You give notice to people. You try to calm them down, and you try to to in fact find out what happened so that you can get on they can get on with their lives really an important function in probate and of course taxes can also be involved with this again if you don't know about taxes uh, you're sometimes committing malpractice by ending up giving resolutions on cases without having the people get competent tax advice so if all else fails we're not able to settle the case and you and there've been these disputes we'll end up in trial and what is important there well first of all i always felt that if if attorneys or parties had confidence in their cases, they'd probably waive jury and just go to a judge alone, unless you were really trying to hit a home run emotionally by by getting large jury verdicts of a large amount of money. But but and I still feel that way too now as a private judge doing arbitrations. But and also let me please say that that we in our country have many benefits for being American citizens, but we also have some obligations, and one of them is to serve on jury duty if and when you're called upon. I know it's inconvenient. I know you get paid all of $10 a day or something like that, plus mileage only one way actually in California. But uh, it's an important function where all of us as citizens keep a lot of control over what government actions are, what happens. And it's really an important thing. Uh, so if you're on a jury or you're, you're going to be called in, you'll go through voir dire, we call it. It's a French word, V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E, which basically means to search for the truth. But you'll, tr you'll try to see if people have preconceptions about a case, they have biases about a case, etc. cetera, uh, on jury duty. You're ob under obligation to testify truthfully about those things and to listen if you're on a jury, listen to the evidence, apply the law as best you can, uh, and reach a just decision under the facts and under the law as instructed by a judge. Uh, you should follow that law as best you can. If you have any questions, ask. And even when my trials, if jurors, I would tell them at the beginning that you're the ultimate decision makers here. If after you've had the questioning by the attorneys, you still have a question that you have in your mind to the witness, feel free, let me know, write the question down. It'll be subject to objection, just like any other question asked by a, an attorney or even a judge. Uh, but if you have that question, feel free to ask. If you make it in writing, it makes it a lot more cumbersome for jurors to continue to ask lots of questions, but it was really an important thing. And so we, we would try to allow that to happen, uh, to get that free flow of information. And as it's kind of as an attorney, I would tell people, when you're asking a question of a jury, it's basically like reviewing a movie. Uh, the opening statement is, this is what I'm going to tell you. And that would be the opening statement that an attorney would make to the jury. Then the testimony itself would be, this is what I'm telling you. And that would be the testimony of the witness. And then your closing argument would be, okay, this is what I told you. And it's kind of like that as a review of a movie. So you would have three questions you would ask of a juror, or excuse me, of a witness. Number one, who are you? You know, I, I want to know who this person is before you start getting into this, to the substance of it. And number two is, well, how are you in a place to, to have information that would help me decide the case? And then number three, and only after you go through those first two, okay, what do you know that would help me decide this case? There's also a difference between direct examination and cross-examination. And the direct is basically like a megaphone, that the best direct examination, in effect, would be because you're calling a witness you are standing for the integrity and the, and the credibility of that witness. So best question would be, what do you know? What happened next? That sort of thing. And that's the small end of the megaphone. And then the witness fills in the large end of the megaphone by talking about various things that, that are responsive to that question. In cross-examination, it's a lot of attorneys just, just go try to cover everything and they really hurt themselves because it's a lot more persuasive to have the same information coming on cross-examination from a witness than on direct examination. It just brings that more, more credibility. So what you want to do is to 
ask a question like on the big big end of the mic of the of the megaphone and narrow it down and narrow it down so that even in fairness to the witness, they would have to answer pretty much yes or no. So you say, well, you weren't really wearing your eye, you, you wear eyeglasses, don't you? Well, yes, I do. And it's, isn't it true that you were not wearing your eyeglasses at the time of this car collision? Well, yes, that's true too. So you, you would try to narrow it down in that regard. Really important things. So as you, you, end up then in your direct examination, your cross-examination, you have questions asked, and only only at the end of this, you try to convince a jury of the, of the truth of your position. It's an expensive process, but I can tell you, it really is a gratifying experience to help resolve these various cases. And in fact, we are, it used to be that you would have a hero, for example, back in the Middle Ages in England, you'd have jousting and you'd resolve the case by by your your hero beating the other one in, in uh, jousting, or you'd have to take guns to the streets. Well, fortunately, we don't have to do that now in our country. We have our judicial system, and I'm proud to be a part of that, uh, albeit a small part, but we are here. Uh, it is we, are, we certainly can get better. It certainly could be faster. It certainly could be less expensive, but it's critically important for all of us to keep the independence of the judiciary. Don't make it political. Don't don't allow, and there's even a United States Supreme Court case called uh, uh, Minnesota versus White that allowed a political parties to endorse candidates for judge, which is really a mistake that you, we should be the same regardless of your politics. The, the facts are going to be the same. The, the law is going to be the same. It should be applied. Try to keep the judicial, the judicial branch independent and able to make decisions for the benefit of us all, because we all get into disputes. We all understand that disputes happen. Life is complicated. We know that, but we can make it less complicated by keeping the judiciary less expensive, more access for justice for everybody. And if you are unfortunate enough to be charged with an offense, to have your rights to be able to be upheld in a neutral judicial fashion. Because literally, therefore, the grace of God go I would apply if, in fact, you are people, United States of America versus Smith. Sometimes you might be Smith, and it's really an important thing. You know what you call a, a liberal, and that is a conservative that just got indicted. And what you call a conservative is a uh, a person who is uh, is trying to escape being indicted. So it's really an important function that we all have. And being judges, it's truly gratifying. And it's something that I would encourage any attorney to pursue if you feel that inclination. So that's where we are. I've gone through this for the last hour and talking about the judicial system, uh, how it works, uh, how it could be made better, and the gratification you'll get by, by being involved in it. I was there for 25 years, and I was just proud to be a judge. And will always be proud to have been there and still try in, in my private capacity to do the same thing. So we all employing libertarian values there, responsibility, judges are in the responsibility business, treating everybody equally and live and let live philosophy. Don't have the, the law run everything. Try to keep keep within the law and keep that law from being so expansive. So that's what we talk about on All Rise. If we do this, we literally will all rise together. So tune in next week. We'll have a guest back discussing various issues that are frequently not discussed in today's world. We discuss them here on All Rise. So in the meantime, enjoy your life. Life is good and talk to you soon. Be well. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds that help us control. We are American law. Strengthen my bonds that help us control.